I want to read today the familiar words of Scripture as they are found in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Uh, You will have heard these, and I invite you to hear them again. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are joining us this morning for the first time in a long time, we are halfway uh, through a four-part series on what we have been calling Seasons of the Soul. And we've been looking together at four crucial movements that God invites us to make in order to change our own lives for the better and the lives of others that we influence. Like the seasons of the year, We do not meet these themes we're exploring just uh, once in our lifetime. The seasons come back, don't they? We walk through them again and again over the course of our life's journey. And in the same way, a healthy life will, I'm going to be suggesting, uh, involve experiences of releasing and recognizing and repairing and restoring again and again if we are attentive to God's leading. I wonder which of those particular movements you might be in right now or be called by God to enter into more fully right now. All four of these significant themes we're talking about are present in this famous story of Jesus we call the parable of the prodigal son. It's a simple story on its face. As I read the words, you probably just uh, went along the familiar details. It's a simple story about a father with two sons that gets recorded in a history and touches so many lives over time. We're going to come back to that particular story in just a moment. But to introduce the big idea that I want to explore today from that tale, I want to tell you the story of another father and another pair of sons, if I may. Some of you may know the name Craig Barnes. He's a well-known Presbyterian pastor who is currently the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, one of my alma maters. And in one of his messages, Craig confesses the pain of knowing a prodigal son who happened to be his father. And this is how Barnes 
recounts the tale. My father left us when I was 16, and he never stopped running. Every time we tried to find him, he would only leave and disappear again. My dad missed all the important events in his kids' lives. Graduations, weddings, the birth of children, our two pastoral ordinations, and both of our PhD ceremonies. I prayed and I prayed that he would return to us. I used to yearn for the day that he would show up in a congregation where I was preaching, and my longing was for him to come through the line at the end of worship and take my hand and say, good job, son, good job. But he never came. He just never came. And he died alone in a raggedy trailer in the middle of Florida somewhere. And we would never have even known that he was gone had, had there not been a, a pastor who didn't even know him, who somehow took it upon himself to search out and track down his family to tell us he was gone. But the truth was, he had been gone for such a long time. Following the funeral service, Craig and his brother went to the little trailer home where their father had spent his last years. And their goal in doing so was to search inside for some kind of clues that would help them to make sense of what their dad's life had been about. To their surprise, they found on the little table in the kitchen section of the mobile home a little devotional journal. And upon opening it up, they found scrawled on the pages of that journal in their father's handwriting so many notes. There were prayers there that he had written to God, voicing his anguish, his sense of guilt, his pain, his wonderings, his common requests. There was there notes that he had taken from reading the scriptures, things in the Bible that had touched his heart or stretched him in some way or challenged him and confused him. But one particular page in this uh, journal caught the attention of the two boys. And the page was tattered. It had frequently been fingered and thumbed. It was dog-eared at the corner from frequent returns to this section of the journal. And across the top of the page was scrawled the, scrawled the words, daily prayer list. The first two items on that list, says Barnes, were my brother's name and my name. I will never understand the lonely madness that drove my father away from everyone who loved him and who now I understand he apparently also still loved. Why didn't he come back? What kept him from returning home? Have you got a clue? I think I do. I think I understand what was going on, at least in part, for that father. 
I suspect that that father figured that his relationship with his family was simply beyond repair. Is there any phrase in the English language that is more disheartening than that one? Beyond repair. Have you felt it? Have you used it? Have you lived it yourself? Maybe so much pain and distance grew up between you and somebody that you were once close to that you figure, well, that relationship is just gone forever. Perhaps like the father in Jesus' parable, you let go of somebody that you cared about. You released them. You prayed that they might actually eventually come back again to you or to God, but they haven't. You've just watched them spiraling down or spinning away further and further. You've longed to see them come to their senses, but now you figure they're probably beyond repair. It could be your relationship with your child. It could be with your spouse. It could be with an extended family member or former friend that now seems somewhat irreparable. I, I think it could even be you that is caught up in some cycle of sin or addiction or a compulsion or a, a pattern of behavior that you simply do not know how to fix, even though a part of you wants to fix it. And in the language of the parable we've been studying these weeks, you are now or they are now out in that distant country feeling like so much has been squandered and you think I'm so far from home I could never get back it's just beyond repair if I could implant one major thought into all of us today it would be this and I quote Jesus Never forget that with God, all things are possible. Things that do not look like they could possibly be healed sometimes can. Relationships that don't seem like they could ever be reconciled sometimes can. Problems that don't appear to have a fix can be solved, and with God's help, there is often, more often than not, a way back home. But the truth is, you don't just get teleported there. It doesn't work like that beaming thing in Star Trek. Whether we're talking about doing home repairs, or fixing our finances, or getting our body back in shape, or restoring our connection with that other person, or most importantly with God himself. Repair is a journey that requires we take some steps, often difficult steps. So think about that for a moment. You may recall that when we left the prodigal son last week, he was going nowhere fast. He was taking no more steps. He was sitting on the ground, figuratively speaking, in a pig pen. Jesus says that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. He was so out of his mind, he was going to try and eat stuff that he couldn't even actually digest. 
but no one gave him anything. This guy is utterly out of resources. He's at the end of the line. He's got no hope. This is for him just a terrible moment, but somehow as he hits bottom, it becomes a beginning. It becomes a beginning. Somehow an impulse arises within him that says in effect, this is not where my story is going to end. I want something better. I want something enough to get up and do something about it. And he says, I will set out and I will go back to my father. I think there's a lesson for us in this. I want to suggest that there's a pattern for us in this because in the journey toward a better future, again, in what a sphere of your life, you identify that for yourself, but in that journey toward that future, you must first truly care for repair. You must do more than think it might be a good idea. You must think it is the idea. You must truly care for repair. We can't just ignore our problems. We can't just shrug our shoulders. We can't just wait for somebody else to come along and fix things for us. We have to find within ourselves, like that kid apparently did, something inside, a passion for things to be better, for things to be different. Whether it's something as small as repairing our car, I had to recently this week, I was just seeing these indicators on my dashboard saying that my tire pressure was low. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to do it. It's so cold out there. I'll have to take off my gloves and turn those little nibby things. And in order to and take that little device to test the pressure, I'll have to put the two, and it's going to be miserable out there. I don't want to do it. There is this resistance even to the smallest kind of repair sometimes. But we have to, I did do it. We have to find it in ourselves to do it. Whether it's as small as a car repair or as large as finding the life that our Father in heaven wants for us, we've got to nurture in ourselves a holy discontent with the way things are now. I don't want my marriage to stay this way. I don't want my relationship with that child or that parent or that other relationship to end this way. I'm not letting this sin, this pattern in my life block me any longer. I will set out and take steps in the direction of a better future. Where is God calling you to care more deeply for repair. I don't mean to suggest that this movement is an easy one, it's not. I can think of a whole lot of reasons why the boy in the parable here might have just quit and never found that deep care. I mean, remember from the story just how badly he had messed up. He'd effectively told his father that he wished he were dead. He'd humiliated his family before their peers. He had absconded with at least of the, a third of the family's estate, and he had lost every bit of it. 
by Jewish standards of that time, if this kid ever did muster up the gumption to come on home and he went back to that neighborhood, he stood an excellent chance of getting stoned for the behavior. And I don't mean a visit to the nearby cannabis shop. I mean, they would have killed him. There was a high risk he would have been publicly executed for what he had done and the disruption that was to the entire social fabric of that time. So why did he dare to believe that repair was possible? Jesus tells us. We see it between the lines of the story. The answer is this. He had some confidence in his father's heart. Jesus says that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? In other words, if my dad treats with such generosity even his employees, maybe, just maybe, there's still a little bit of kindness left in his heart for me. I want to suggest to you that when it comes to fixing broken relationships, beyond caring for that repair, the second step is that you must dare to believe, to even trust that the other is open to repair. That there's something in them, maybe just a tiny little bit of them, given all that's happened, that might be open to a repair move from you. I know that that is a big leap of faith because truthfully not everybody is open to repair. There are some very hard, very self-righteous, very unforgiving people in this world. There were in the time of Jesus too. In fact, the entire context of this whole storytelling by Jesus is that group of people. Jesus, we know from the start of Luke chapter 15, is actually speaking to the Pharisees. The stories that he tells in this chapter are aimed at the heart of the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought that people who messed up should be condemned and kept at a permanent distance. In fact, the chapter opens with these words. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, IRS agents even in those days, were regarded poorly. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. There were these younger sons, in a sense, who were aware that they had problems and they were gathering around to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It myths them, it mystifies them that Jesus is so openly welcoming and extending kindness to messed up people who were so obviously, what? Beyond repair. And this is also the attitude of the elder brother in the story later on. 
who when the sun does come home is not interested in entertaining this repair move. He considers this person lost and beyond repair, not understanding that he also is so lost and in need of repair. I read a fascinating article this week. It was a a blog post online by a professor at NYU named James Carse. And Carse argues that most of us through the course of our life are involved in playing what he calls finite or infinite games. Finite games, he explains, are those where the boundaries are highly defined. In finite games, there are strict rules. And when a player violates one of them, he or she is heavily penalized. Think of football or hockey or American Ninja Warrior. In finite games like all of those, the game has a specific time limit and the object of the activity is to win and if you mess up, you're out. Infinite games, says Kars, work quite differently. There is no time limit and the boundaries are more fluid. We had one of these when I was growing up. We lived in a house a long distance away from the major neighborhood in our village and as a result we invented games in our house. I invented one called Monster. It was a great game. It involved the architecture of our house which was a house that had staircases at both ends of it and a long corridor that went in between off of which were various rooms that interconnected. And the monster was like the one who Uh, was the tagger and all of the rest of us, the object of our game was to run up and down the corridor and not have the monster leap out and grab us. And it was just the four of us, myself and my three siblings at first, and then gradually friends would hear about this and we would invite them into the game and the group would grow larger and we'd have to change the rules to accommodate the larger group of kids and then after a little while, strangers would come up to us at school and say, hey, can I come play monster? And the community grew and we'd have to adjust things again. And when the dinner bell would ring and everybody would have to go home, there was such disappointment. And we would make uh, plans for when we'd come back together and continue the game. It was an infinite game. The rules are made up by the players, says Kars. They can be changed for the sake of the game's real purpose. For the goal, you see, is, is not for one person to win over another and beat the clock. The goal is to prolong the game. It's to keep the learning, the growing, the adventuring, the togetherness going. It's the game of life. It's the game of relationships. It's the game of the kingdom of God, this infinite game. The Pharisees of this world play finite games. And what Jesus was doing was trying to reach them with his parables. He was trying to show them that the heavenly father is more interested in the infinite game. He is less concerned about people making mistakes and more concerned about what people will do with those mistakes once they come to their senses. 
The kingdom of God is about learning, it's about growing, it's about getting better together. And for that reason that you, for that reason you can trust that as long as you are alive, God is always open to repairing the relationship between us and him. He wants us also to be like him. The father wants his kids to be like him. It's why he's so disappointed in this story in the elder son who who won't embrace the younger one. He wants us to be about repairing relationships whenever it's possible. So how do we do that? How do we go about uh, repairing relationships when they've gotten terribly messed up? Like the prodigal son in the parable of Jesus, or like Craig Barnes' prodigal father, or like the fight I described last week over the burned shrimp. How do we fix it? What is it we can do? Well, if this parable is any clue, one further constructive step is to speak words of repair. It's to make a move towards the other with words of repair. Listen to how the younger son in the story does this. After deciding that he cares enough to try to repair the relationship with his father and daring to trust that his father might be open to a repair attempt, the son makes a commitment to go to his dad and to say, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven, against the nature of things, and I've sinned against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so please just make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, I wronged God and you by my actions. I have no excuse. There's no explanation for this. I did it. I can't justify myself. Let me just serve you now. Are you accustomed to bringing this kind of humility, this kind of vulnerability, this kind of servanthood to people when your relationship has broken down? Obviously, that's difficult when they are clearly the ones in the wrong. When they deserve to be put in the penalty box, if not booted out of the game altogether. It's hard to do that, isn't it? But how committed are you going to stay to always playing the finite game? How ready are you or am I to be penalized for all of our errors in life? And how by our words can we show that like our heavenly father himself, In our best moments, we want to be more about the infinite game. Renowned marital therapist John Gottman says that the healthiest marriages, for example, are always marked by an unusually high willingness to speak and to receive words of repair. He says, actually, and Gottman is the, if there was a hall of famer about relationships, Gottman's it. Okay, he is the best. He is the Tiger Woods uh, of of the sport of relationships. And, and And he can watch a couple interacting 
for 20 minutes and predict with 75% accuracy whether that relationship will survive. Give him 35, 40 minutes, he's like north of 90% in predicting the survivability of the relationship. And, and that's why he's renowned. And what he looks for, amongst other things, is, is whether repair attempts are made by the couple and whether the other person in the couple is willing to receive the repair attempt. People initiating repair attempts through words of prayer say things like, I am so sorry. My actions or my reactions were too extreme. And these are individual statements. This is not a whole speech, okay? Or, I really blew that one. Or, can I try again? Or, I, I want to fix this, but I, I don't know how. Or, I can see my part in all this. Or, I know that I hurt you, and I feel terrible about that. Or, I think I see why I got so lost and did you wrong the way I did. Or, I realize now that not only did I fail you, I failed God in this. Or, I can see that this is a bigger pattern in my life or please forgive me. What could you say to someone in your life today or in the days ahead that might be a little like that? As we move to a close, I really hope that you have seen over the past three weeks how many practical principles from the parable land helpfully in our daily lives. And if you haven't been part of this series so far, I strongly encourage you, go back, listen to the first two episodes as well. You're going to find that this stuff lands in our lives. I would not, however, want you to miss the main and the biggest point of this parable, the principal reason why Jesus told this story. Jesus is trying to say here that God wants a repaired relationship with you and me. Whether we're the younger brother, the elder brother, the Pharisee, or the tax collector, we're all sinners, and God wants a repaired relationship. No matter how we have hurt his heart, no matter how much we have dishonored his name by our selfish or our self-righteous actions, no matter how far away we may have run from him, no matter how badly we've squandered the wealth that he has given to us, no matter how deeply we have forsaken our true identity and lived out of our false self, we can still come home. That's the gospel. That's the message of the parable Jesus is trying to impress upon us. We just need to care about the repair. We just need to want a change in the relationship. We simply need to speak genuine words of sorrow over how it's broken down and our part in that. We merely need to trust that he is open to receiving us back. And it was in this spirit that we're told the character in the story. So he got up and he went to his father. Do you need to get up and go to your father.
I invite you to imagine with me that young man cresting that final hill on that long journey home. And as he comes up over the hill, he looks out and before him, he sees spread out in the valley beyond the beautiful range of his father's estate. It looks every bit like it did when he left so long ago. Only now, down the south, by the south end, there's a big fence around a portion of the property that belonged once to his dad that's now been sold off. Everything looks so much like when he had left. There were laborers working as they always did before the glow of the setting sun. There was the gracious farmhouse nestled among the golden fields. And yet there down at the end of the dirt lane that ran up to the farmhouse, there was an unfamiliar sight. There was the silhouette of someone standing there at the gate. There where the road met the driveway of the family home was the figure of a lone man silhouetted in the light of the setting sun, a solitary watchman of sorts. And as the sun stood on the brow of the hill and stared down into the valley, what the boy could not know for who on earth would ever believe it was that that lone figure had stood there so often over the days, gazing towards the crest of that hill, all those long days since his child had left home. And as the boy paused there at, at the crest, he noticed the silhouette changed. All of a sudden, the figure broke his stolid stance he took a step down the lane that wound its way from the old estate to the top of the hill where the boy stood. And then the silhouette took another step and then another, each of them coming faster. And then the old man hiked up his robes and began a full run. And I invite you to hold that image in your mind until we return next week. And what I want you to know is that is your father running toward you. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we remember the words of your servant, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., as he called us so often to repair what is broken, to make a movement towards repair. If you can't fly, then run, he said. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. Spur us. Increase our care for this outcome. Deepen our trust in the possibility of it. Move us to speak the words we need to speak. Remembering always that the time 
is always ripe to do right. For this we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.